And God, please bless all the missionaries. Have you, have you ever prayed a prayer like that? <laughs> I, I remember as a kid growing up in church, I was told by, you know, Sunday school teachers, whoever, you should pray for the missionaries. But no one ever taught me necessarily how to pray for the missionaries. And so what came out was just kind of that generic, and God, please bless the missionaries. You know, sometimes I wonder, even as adults, if our prayers for the lost come out kind of generic like that. Maybe we've never really taken a lot of time to study. Maybe we've never been taught how to pray. How to pray for lost people. And so our prayers just sound kind of generic. And God, please save the lost. Today, we are going to learn at least a little bit about how to pray for the lost. Would you like to learn with me? Some of you do. That's great. <laughs> well, let's go on this journey together. How we could learn to pray for relatives, for friends that need Jesus Christ. The, today's sermon is actually going to have two parts, and you'll notice that as we go along. We're going to spend most of our time, more than half our time, learning how to pray for our lost, spiritually lost, family members and friends. And then we'll spend some time on how to pray for ourselves. So we're going to pray for the people being evangelized, but then we also want to pray for ourselves as those who are evangelizing, the evangelizers. So let's begin with the first one. How do we pray for lost people? Now, think of it this way. If you think of prayer as coming into the throne room of the king, coming into the throne room of the king of kings, God himself, and we're going to make an appeal. We're going to make an appeal to the king of kings. And we're going to appeal to the king of kings, please save my family member. Please save my friend. Or maybe even just please pray for someone we just met uh, on a plane or uh, in a grocery store. As we make our appeal to the King of Kings, please save this person. On what basis do we make our appeal? What is the foundation for our prayer? Of God, come and save my son. Come and save my daughter. Come and save my dad. Come and save my coworker. Are there any bases in the Bible on which we should appeal to God for the salvation of lost souls? Can you think of anything in the Bible that we could lean on that if we were to prepare our prayers as if you were preparing to go talk to a king and you're designing your appeal, you're designing your, your request, is there anything in the Bible that would inform and shape our appeal that God should show mercy to this one. I think there are. I think there are several bases, several foundational appeals we can make to God for the salvation of lost souls. I would say first, we come to God and we appeal to him based on his revealed compassion. God's revealed himself as a compassionate God, and when we come to him, we can reflect that back to him. 
Not, not that God needs reminded, that's not my point, but it's as if we're reminding him of who he is, what kind of God he is. And so we come to him and we're reflecting that back to him, that he is a God of compassion. Listen, friends, we do not make our appeals to God for the salvation of our lost friends and family members based on some worthiness found in them. I think sometimes we want to come into the throne room of God and we want to convince him that he should save our, our family member, maybe a, a daughter or a grandson. And, and, and we want to appeal to God based on some worthiness in that person. You know, God, she really is a sweet little girl. You know, God, he, he's just a really sincere person. God, could you please have mercy on this one who's, who's really trying hard to be a good person, really a sincere person. We do not make our appeals to God based on some supposed worthiness in that person that we're bringing to his attention. Why is that? Why do we not make an appeal to God based on the, the goodness, the worthiness of our friend or a family member? Be, because it's not true. They're not good people. They are not righteous people. The Word of God is clear on this. And there are some verses in the Bible that challenge us. And this is one of those. There's a verse in Romans, chapter 3, verse 10, that says, None is righteous. No, not one. Now, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Do you know what that verse means? There's none righteous. It, it means simply what it says, that there's no one. I mean, if you were to line up the seven billion people of this world and, and say, okay, let's pick out the good ones. Even though there's seven billion people in front of us, there's nobody to pick. Who We say, now that person in and of himself is a righteous person. And if you think about coming into the throne room of God, who's sitting on the throne? It is the holy God. It is the holy God of the universe. And if we come to the throne of the holy God of the universe and we try to convince him, please save my family member, please save my friend because she's such a good person. He's such a sweet person. Do you think that request would have weight? Do you think that request would be convincing to a perfectly holy God? That a perfectly holy God would listen to you and say, well, you have a point there. I mean, he is holy. Or, to use the terminology of Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. That he is absolutely holy. And we are not going to beg his mercy based on the supposed goodness, the supposed worthiness of some friend or family member of ours who is unsaved. Now, now, we don't present our case to God based on the worthiness of our lost friend or family member. We come and we make our appeal to God based on His revealed character. And He has revealed Himself to be a compassionate God. Did you know He actually reveals Himself in the Bible to be compassionate on sinners? Do you remember ever reading Ezekiel 18? I sometimes re teasingly refer to that part of the Bible as the sticky pages. 
You know what I mean? When the preacher says, turn to Ezekiel, and you hear people turning there, and they're pulling the pages apart because they're sticking together. They've never been opened before. <laughs> Ezekiel is one of those books of the Bible that a lot of people haven't read. But listen to this. This is one of those hidden gems. In Ezekiel chapter 18, God says this. He says in chapter 18, verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And God reveals himself in the scriptures as taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says, I don't get joy, I don't get pleasure in seeing people perishing in hell. He says, do you know what I'm like? Do you know who I am? I have compassion on lost people. God continues that in that chapter, 18 and verses 31 and 32. He says, why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And here's God pleading with people. Don't ignore my grace. Turn and live. And so when we come into the throne room of God, designing our appeal, laying out our prayer for our unsafe family member, unsafe friend, we come to him reminding him of what he said, reminding him of who he is, the kind of God he is. Take that into the throne room. Take that into the throne room that you come before the throne of God and you pray something like this. Heavenly Father, you said you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You are a compassionate God. Will you please take pity on my death-deserving family member? Will you turn his heart, will you turn her heart to you so that he might live? Please, God, show compassion on my ill-deserving loved one. You come and you make your appeal based on who he is, how he's revealed himself to be. He's compassionate, and he is compassionate on sinners. Can we find any other basis in the Bible in which we can design our request, that we can base our appeal to the king of kings? Yes. Here's a second one, a second basis by which we can design our prayer request. His sovereignty, his kingly right to show mercy. We sang some wonderful hymns this morning. I am so thankful for Marcos's desire to have us sing songs that reflect the word of God and honor him. And my friends, we are misguided if we think our unsafe friends or unsafe family members have some innate desire to reach out to God on his own. We're mistaken if we think our unsafe friends have some innate ability to reach out to God on his or her own. You could make your request to your friend, and apart from God's intervening grace, apart from God's getting involved in changing the heart, you could appeal for a hundred years, turn to God, and you're not going to get any response. Because even as we sang this morning, we weren't just drowning, we were dead. Jesus said that unsaved people live in the darkness 
and love the darkness. Jesus said that. That that night that he talked to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, in John chapter 3, verse 19, it's recorded, Jesus said this, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They they, they love the darkness. Paul said something similar in Romans chapter 3. He says, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so if we make our appeal to people turn to God without praying to God, without God intervening, nothing's going to happen. But as we prepare our prayer, as we prepare our appeal to the King of Kings, come and have mercy on my unsaved family member. Come and show mercy to my unsaved friend. We come to him as the king. We come to him because he is sovereign. He has the ability. He has the authority. He has the willingness to save ill-deserving sinners. Justin read from Romans 10. If you want to join me in Romans 9, I'm going to be reading a lot of passages to you this morning, so I don't expect everyone to turn to each one. I'll read them to you, but uh, this is one you might want to turn to, Romans 9, so you can make sure I'm not making this up. (laughs) But in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Moses is quoting God, excuse me, Paul is quoting God's words to Moses. And he says this in Romans 9.15. God is speaking. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so if we understand who God is, if we understand how God revealed himself, he has revealed himself as the one who has mercy. He has the ability and the authority alone to dispense mercy. He is the one who can show mercy, saving mercy, on ill-deserving sinners. And so if we're preparing our prayer request, if we're thinking, how am I going to appeal? How am I going to appeal to the King of Kings to have mercy on my son, my daughter, my dad, my mom, my cousin, my friend at work? We come basing our appeal on who he is, and he is sovereign. Take that into the throne room, my friend. Pray something like this. Sovereign Lord, you and you alone can change the leper spots. You and you alone have authority and power to take out a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Come, my sovereign king. Do your miracle of grace in the life of my ill-deserving loved one. Have mercy, sovereign king. Some of you have heard me tell the story before of uh, a pastor friend of mine. He used to pastor in West Virginia. And he had a certain old mountain man in his church who used to say this. He used to say, if God don't turn on the lights, they don't get turned on. My friend, that's that's good theology. (laughs) If God don't turn on the lights. They don't get turned on. 
And that's actually Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It's one of my favorite verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Many of you are here today as believers. My Christian friend is not that. Is not that what he did for you. That there was a time in your life where you were living in darkness and loving darkness. And one day God in his amazing sovereign grace spoke his saving light into your darkened soul. And this light came into your life. And what happened to you that day? What happened to you that day when He shone His light into your darkened soul? Maybe, maybe for the first time, you saw the futility of your own supposed goodness. Maybe for the first time, you saw the futility of your own supposed self-righteousness. Where before that day, He turned the lights on. You thought of yourself, not perfect, but you know what? I think I'm a pretty good person. I think God will have mercy on someone like me because you know what? I usually try to do the right thing. I, I, think, I think I'm a pretty good person overall. I think God will probably show mercy to me. And then, boom, one day the lights came on. God shone his light into your darkened soul, and suddenly you looked at your supposed self-righteousness, and you say, there's no hope in that. That's not sufficient. What's that all about? That's offensive to God to try to somehow convince him that I'm a good person. He's not impressed by that. And suddenly that which you used to, to love, you began to hate. And you said, my sin. Oh, Lord, wash, wash my sin away. Wash away my sin. Yes, including my sin of self. He turned the lights on, didn't he? And what else happened that day he turned the lights on? You not only saw your sin like you never saw it before, but you saw Jesus like you never saw him before. Or before that day, you didn't really care about Jesus. You could take him or leave him. You know, you could leave him. But then that day, that day when he turned the lights on, you saw you saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And maybe for the first time in your life, you saw Jesus as, as precious. You saw him as precious to you. And for the first time in your life, you thought, I want him. I want him more than anything else. I want him more than everything else. And suddenly, that one whom before you hated, you suddenly loved. And God did his miracle of grace in your life. He did his miracle of grace in your life. He turned the lights on. And cannot we ask him to do it again? Oh, Lord, do it again. You and you alone are sovereignly gracious. You and you alone are graciously sovereign. 
you and you alone have the authority and the ability to come and lighten a darkened soul. Oh, sovereign king, would you do that in the life of my family member? Would you do that in the life of my And as I was preparing to feed you God's word today, I was struck with the reminder that almost all of us have somebody in our life that is particularly hardened, particularly disinterested in Christ. When we look at that loved one who seems so hard, and we think, I can't ever, I can't ever picture him. I cannot ever picture her humbling herself before a holy God and begging for mercy. I can't even picture it. And so we rarely pray for those people. We think, what's the use? They're so hard, my friends. Our eyes are in the wrong place. You don't look at your hardened friend and and try to assume some hope that on his own or her own, she'll somehow soften, come to his senses. No, we don't look there for our hope. We anchor our hope in the sovereign king. And we come to the throne room. We come to the throne of him who can change the hardest heart, melt the hardest heart. I had an old hymn come to my mind this week. John Newton, everybody knows John Newton's most famous hymn ever. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But did you know he wrote a lot of other hymns? And there's one that's been largely forgotten. But Newton wrote this. He said about praying. He said, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None could ever ask too much. Do you hear that? We're coming to a king. We could never ask too much of this king. Because he has infinite power. He has infinite Mercy, infinite compassion, for his grace and power are such. None could ever ask too much. And so when you're burdened, when you're weeping for the soul of your family member, your friend who seems so hard, take him to the king. Take him to the king. And say, sovereign king, you You are able to save my hardened heart. You are able to save my hardened friend. Oh, King, turn on us. Some of you were those people. Now good grief. Oh, we make our appeal. We could make our appeal to the king. Mm. Can we think of anything else? Can we think of 
any other basis found in the Scripture on which to make our appeal for the salvation of our, not just undeserving, I, I use this word deliberately, ill-deserving loved ones and friends. Can you think of any other thing we can bring before the throne and make it part of our appeal? And I think there is. Let me give you a third. We appeal to him to display his glory in the salvation of ill-deserving sinners. Paul said this to the Corinthians. I, I read to you 2 Corinthians 4, 6, a little bit later in that same chapter. He says, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In other words, as God comes and he saves more and more ill-deserving sinners, there are more people giving thanks, giving praise, worshiping Him. And isn't that what we want? That's what He wants. And so our hearts beat in unison with His. And so we take that revealed desire on His heart to receive praise, to receive worship from His creatures. And so we come and we make our appeal based on God. Come and display your glory in the salvation of ill-deserving sinners. Listen to this powerful passage of our destination. Revelation chapter 5. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read verses 8 through 14. Revelation chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. And here the apostle John is allowed to see what lies ahead. And this is what he saw. When he, that would be Jesus the Lamb, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for, because, for, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's where we're headed, my Christian friends. And so we can take that into the throne room of God, and we can pray something like this. Oh Lord, we want that crowd around the throne of Your Son to be large. We want it to be loud. So please have mercy on many. Have mercy on many. We want many redeemed people around the throne of your Son. Friends, there might be more, but this morning I give you those three. That as we prepare our request for God to extend saving grace to our loved ones, our friends, we come with appeal to His compassion for sinners. His sovereignty over the souls of people and his desire to display his glory. Bring those into the throne. 
when you pray for the souls of lost people. And now more briefly, how do we pray for ourselves as evangelizers? I'm going to go back to Romans 9. And I'm going to read the first three verses. The Apostle Paul, writing about his relatives, his fellow Jews, said this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Whoa. Woe's not in there. I said that. And if you just turn to chapter 10, verse 1, Paul continues his theme. He says, brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. There's a compassion there, isn't it? I think many of us, and I'm going to put myself definitely in this camp, maybe the first thing we need to pray for ourselves is that we uh, develop a growing compassion for the lost. I don't want to embarrass my wife, but just yesterday we were struck with the reality of a relative of ours that definitely needs Christ. And I was looking at her brokenness, realizing, you know what, I, I need to be more broken. I need to be more compassionate. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you want to join me in praying that the Lord would break our hearts, that we would be compassionate. And I listened to Paul's testimony here as he, he expresses this compassion for his lost family members. And you might even wonder, is it okay to pray that way? Is it okay to pray, Lord, make my heart softer? Give me a compassion for the lost? I was reading something that John Piper said. He said, if, if he, Paul, calls on the Holy Spirit to vouch for his conscience in this matter, then surely we must look upon the sorrow as a worthy affection, a spiritual emotion, a, a godly grief. It is the way a godly heart feels when it focuses on the misery of those who are perishing in unbelief. Should not our heart feel what Paul felt? Should not we grieve over the misery of the lost, especially our kinsmen, our relatives? I think the answer would be yes. And I wonder sometimes if my heart is dulled because I forget just how deep the predicament it is in, of their or relatives and our friends are in who are without Christ. I think sometimes, sometimes we keep it too superficial and we think of Jesus as kind of a nice add-on in life, like a nice option to have in life. What, why don't you add Jesus to your life? You know, it would be a lot better for you if you just added Jesus to your life. And when a relative or a friend is rejecting Christ, we're sad, we think, boy, they're sure missing out on a lot in life. We realize, though, from the Bible, that their predicament is much worse than just missing out on some nice options because they don't have Christ. Remember that conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus? I've referred to it a couple times already. He said this to uh, Rabbi Nicodemus that night. I'm quoting Jesus. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. You ready? But the wrath of God remains on him. 
And there's Jesus saying this. Jesus is saying people who do not obey the gospel, people who refuse to put their faith in Jesus Christ, when Jesus says, come to me, and people say, no, I think I'd rather not. They're not just missing out on some of life's blessings. Jesus said, the wrath of God remains on that person. That person is still under the righteous judgment of God and is facing hell unless they turn in faith. So we remember that. And we pray, Holy Spirit, soften my heart. Lord, please give me a compassion for the lost. A second way we should pray for ourselves is for open doors. Open doors to share the gospel. In Colossians, the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul said this. He, he made an appeal for people to pray for him as an evangelizer. And in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul writes, By the Holy Spirit, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also. Pray for me, my fellow missionaries, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Pray for an open door. We, we pray for open doors, don't we? When you think about your school, you think about your workplace, you think about your family reunions, you think about your neighborhood, we say, Lord, open the doors. Lord, give me opportunities to talk to people about Jesus Christ, their need for him. By the way, some of you know the background to uh, the book of Colossians. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? Anybody remember? He was in prison. He was in prison! <laughs> Here's this missionary in prison, and he says, Hey, remember to pray that the Lord had opened doors for me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's in prison. You know what? I am, I'm looking forward to a lot of things about heaven, but one thing I want to look for in heaven is how many Roman guards came to faith in Christ as fruit of this prayer. We know from other parts of the Bible that some of these uh, praetorian guards did come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't wasting his time in prison, was he? He was sharing the gospel, even with the men he was chained to. We ought to pray for open doors. And we ought not to be pessimistic. You know, sometimes we think, oh, people don't want to hear about Jesus. Well, they don't, but we have a sovereign God, don't we? <laughs> so we pray, Lord, open doors. And it's fascinating. I, I think of times we've had recently where it was like, well, there's an open door. <laughs> so... We weren't even expecting it sometimes, and the Lord showed us ways we could be sharing the gospel with other people. So we pray for that. We pray for open doors. But then a third thing we pray for, we pray for compassion. We pray for open doors. The third thing is pray for boldness. Paul recognized that in Ephesians 6, a twin letter to Colossians. In Ephesians 6, he said in verses 19 and 20, he said, And also pray for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. And twice in those sentences, Paul asks for prayer for boldness, boldness in evangelizing. He wanted to be fearless in presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You know, we need to pray not only that God open the doors, but he opened, that he would open our mouths. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes I think he opens the doors and we're afraid to walk through. You ever been there? And then later you think, oh, I missed that one. <laughs> Isn't God patient with us? Isn't he kind? But we should learn from those experiences where we realize, you know what, that would have been a wonderful opportunity to ask people questions about their soul, to ask if we could share Christ with them. So we ask for prayer, for open doors. We ask for prayers for open mouths, for, for boldness. Why would, why, where would the uh, Holy Spirit, what would the Holy Spirit do in answering that prayer? So how do you think he would answer that prayer to give us boldness? I, I think one way he answers that prayer is reminding us of the power of the gospel. He wrote this to the Romans, chapter 1. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And sometimes when we pray for boldness, the Holy Spirit, the way he answers that is he says, remember the power of the gospel. And Paul wrote something similar to the Corinthian believers in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. He said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God. Wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit reminds us that the Holy Spirit does. What he does is he takes the gospel of Jesus Christ and he empowers it in the lives of people he's reaching. And so we pray for boldness and then watch what the Holy Spirit does with us. That he opens not only the doors, but he opens our mouths. And then I think yet another prayer request for ourselves is this. To pray for clarity. Clarity in presenting the gospel message. Back to that Colossian passage I mentioned, Colossians 4. It continues this way. It says, pray also for us, God may open a door. And then he says, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And I think sometimes maybe out of fear of rejection or maybe even just a carnal desire to fit in, we feel like, well, you know, as a Christian, I should probably say something, but not wanting to offend and wanting to remain friends with our schoolmates or our co-workers. We, we kind of, you know, kind of soft-pedal the gospel message. And I wonder sometimes if people are asking themselves, is this person a Christian or a vegan? <laughs> you know, like, what are you saying, you know? And, and, and we're like so nebulous out of fear of being rejected that we just kind of soften the gospel to the point that it's Christless. We don't speak a Christless gospel. Paul wanted clarity, he said, on the mystery of Christ. The gospel centers on Jesus Christ, on who he is and, and what he's done and how he can radically change us, save us. And so we pray for ourselves, Lord, help me understand the gospel. Help me know what to say that I might be clear let me encourage you. Some of you were not here last Sunday. Some of you were here and you missed some of it. But Pastor Mark taught us last week on what to say. And thank you, Pastor Mark, for serving us so well. Get on the church's website and listen to it for the first time or the second time or the third time. But listen to that message Pastor Mark taught us on what to say. It will help us be clear on what the gospel message is. Also, let me encourage you, 
I checked right before I came in the auditorium. If you go out in the lobby and hang a right, there's what we call the resource center, the resource room. It has lots of books and stuff in there. On the counter, there's displayed for us a half a dozen or so of wonderful books, wonderful titles on the gospel message, on evangelism, what it is, how to share it. Let me encourage you if you're saying, I really want to be more clear in sharing the gospel with my friends and family members, stop there and buy one of those books, take it home and devour it, pray over it. Friends, what we're going to do now is we don't want to just talk about praying for our lost family members and friends. We want to do it. We're going to do something a little bit unusual today, but we're going to spend some time praying right now. We're going to spend some time praying right now for family members, friends that are on our hearts. You can do this individually if you care to, but I would encourage you, if possible, that you form a little huddle, a little prayer huddle. And maybe you're here today and you're not a believer and you say, I'm not comfortable praying in front of other people. Well, you can still get in the huddle even if you don't say anything. But I would encourage you to get with a few other people around you today and to pray. Pray for your lost family members, friends. Pray for yourself. We're going to have a couple slides that will rotate kind of you guiding through this. The one will show us in praying for unsafe family members and friends to pray um, for God's compassion, to pray for God's sovereignty, and to pray for God's glory. And then as we pray for ourselves, that we pray for compassionate hearts like God's, that we pray for open doors, that we pray for courage, and that we pray for clarity. So we're going to go to prayer, and then after a while, Marcos will come up and lead us in a closing song, and Pastor Mark will come and bring a word of benediction. But let's do go to prayer. So you can stand up if it's easier, look around you, ask some friends, would you like to pray with us? And we will pray for our family and friends who need Christ.